Amen. It is great knowing that there is nothing that nothing that is greater than our God. And I have two things I want to share. First of all, uh, Daly had no idea exactly where I'm going to go with the sermon today, but that song actually fits perfectly with it, and you will see that later in the message. But before I get into the message, I also wanted to take a moment and just uh, say thank you to those who have served for us to be able to meet and to be able to worship and to be able to do the things we do as a church. Uh, this weekend is obviously Veterans Day weekend, and many of you are out of school or work or wherever it might be this, uh, I guess, tomorrow. And I uh, just wanted to take a moment. If you have served in the United States military, whether it be the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, or Coast Guard, would you please stand and allow us the privilege of expressing our appreciation? Thank you for your service. The fact that we were able to meet in a place like this is partially because of individuals like yourselves who have willingly fought for those freedoms. So thank you very, very much. Now, as many of you know, I had the honor this week of doing a funeral for one of our great saints of the church, and Richard even mentioned him during our prayer time. Over the years, I have done hundreds of funerals. I confess that some of them are easier to do than others. It is difficult because of their age sometimes. It's a lot easier to do a funeral for an 89-year-old who died of natural causes as opposed to a 27-year-old who died from an accident or cancer. Another factor is the spiritual condition of the one who is deceased. There's a sense of comfort for the family when we know that the individual lived under the grace of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 speaks of our grief in such situations, saying, We do not grieve as those who have no hope. The point is not that we shouldn't grieve, but rather that our grief is tempered by the promise of eternal life that awaits all those who are in Christ. So when an individual has died and you know that their heart was right with God, we have no reason to fear about where they are today, for we know that they are in the presence of God. His eternal healing has taken place. Contrast that with the family that knows that he or she was far from God in their faith and in their practice. I used to own a shirt that said, live your life in such a way that the preacher won't have to lie at your funeral. I've been at funerals where you weren't really sure if the pastor was talking about the right person. I remember meeting with a family on one occasion. I had never met anyone from the family previous to this funeral, but the funeral home had contacted me and asked if I would come and help out. A husband and a wife, and they were taking care of their mother's funeral. I asked if they knew about how many people were planning on being at the funeral the next day, and I was informed that they would be the only guests. When I asked why, the husband said, she was the most miserable woman I've ever met, so don't go off saying a bunch of nice things about her because it wasn't true. Talk about putting the fun in funeral. It was so exciting. Well, I want us to talk about the death of an individual today, but I'm not talking about a longtime member of the church or the most miserable woman that I've ever met. 
I'm talking about someone who died nearly 2,000 years ago. And although he died at a very young age, his death is actually one of the most beautiful things to have occurred in all of human history. In fact, it changes history for all of us. I'm obviously talking about the death of Jesus Christ. But as we look at his death, I want to start much further back than 2,000 years ago. I want to go all the way back to the book of Exodus chapter 12, and I'm going to invite you, if you would, to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there to Exodus chapter 12. As you turn there, let me summarize what is taking place prior to our passage. To begin with, the Israelites have been serving as slaves for many, many years in Egypt. And the longer they serve, the harder it gets. The oppression reaches its peak when Pharaoh grows alarmed at the population growth among the Israelites. He fears that they might become too numerous and rise up against the Egyptians. So he instructs the midwives to begin killing all of the infant Israelite boys by throwing them into the Nile River. And so the people begin to cry out for God to deliver them. Fast forward to the deliverance which God brings to Israel. He sends a man named Moses to Pharaoh, instructing him to let the people go. Yet each time, Pharaoh refuses. And so God demonstrates great power to drive home his point, bringing about suffering upon Egypt. And each time one of these plagues or calamities comes upon Egypt, Pharaoh asks God to remove the plague agreeing to let the people go, yet he always changes his mind. And then we come to Exodus 12. This is the introduction of the final plague, the one that will cause Pharaoh to truly let the people of God leave. It begins with instructions for God's people as they prepare for their deliverance. Look at verses 1 through 11. It says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs, and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you're to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now I'm going to tell you, that is a gruesome passage telling you exactly how you are to eat this meat, and it talks about cooking all of the organs with everything else, and you look at it, you're spreading blood in different places. What an odd passage of Scripture. 
but I'm also going to suggest to you that this was an incredibly important passage of Scripture, and it did not only apply to the Israelites who were about to leave Egypt. Later that night, God would send his death angel throughout the land of Egypt, and those who have the blood of the lamb on their door frames are spared. The angel will pass them over, but in each house where the blood has not been applied, as the angel passes over, the firstborn son of each household will die. Seems like poetic justice that God would take the firstborn son of the very same people who sought to kill the Israelite children just a few years earlier. Anyways, by morning, the Egyptians would be pleading with the Israelites to simply leave them alone. Skip down to verse 14 for a moment. It adds, this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. The people are instructed to never forget this event. For generations to come, they must remember how God delivered them out of bondage and into freedom. We're going to come back to this story in just a few moments, but I want you to realize that this feast was never just about Egypt and Israel. Instead, it was intended to also foreshadow the role that Jesus Christ would play in setting all of humanity free. You see, Jesus would be pure. He would be the spotless lamb of God whose blood would be shed, bringing life to all those who are under the blood. I would imagine that most of us today, the image of slavery is something that is somewhat foreign to us. It's something we look at in a historical manner. We remember days when the United States struggled with this issue of slavery. But do you know that the United States is not the only nation that has struggled with the issue of slavery? By the way, slavery happens even today. It was estimated recently that there are about 27 million people today that find themselves in slavery. Much of that still occurs even here in the United States. Uh, human trafficking is a significant issue. Much of it happens in other areas of the world. In fact, the largest population of slaves today are found in Southern Asia. Uh, it's called indebted slavery. So individuals who perhaps they owe some debt, they make up for it by being enslaved and they work it off until the point that basically they no longer find themselves to be in debt. 27 million people today still find themselves in slavery. But I would suggest to you that more than 27 million people find themselves in slavery. For all of us at some point have been enslaved by sin. Sin has had such a grip on our lives that we felt trapped and there was no way out. All of us, whether we have realized it or not, have known the weight of slavery. It seems only appropriate that we find Jesus celebrating the Passover as we move to the New Testament, as we move to the story of the Last Supper, as he gathered with his disciples in Matthew 26. I had Richard read it earlier in verses 26 and 27. We have the Last Supper taking place. It is what is portrayed in this little 
statue, whatever you want to call it, that is sitting up here on the platform. It is what is portrayed in Da Vinci's The Last Supper painting, which many of you probably have in your home. This is the very last time that Jesus will enjoy a meal with his disciples prior to his arrest and crucifixion. By the way, he will eat with them again. We see that he eats with them on the seashore after the resurrection when he appears to them. But this is the last time before his arrest, before his betrayal. Interesting about the betrayal. He knows who the betrayer is as he sits at the table and eats with them. He knows that on that very same night, he will be arrested. And then all of the other disciples, with the exception of John, also will betray. Now, they won't be the ones who turn him in, but they will be the ones that turn and run. They will be the ones who will deny that they even know who this Jesus is. But this is not just any meal that they're participating in. It's the Passover. In Matthew 26, look at verse 17. It says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. That is the Passover. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? This meal is the Passover meal celebrating and remembering the shedding of the lamb's blood resulting in deliverance for all those who were under the blood. Well, needless to say, the disciples aren't quite ready to connect the dots between the first Passover and the first time that the Lamb's blood was shed and what is about to take place as Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes him upon himself the sin of the world, allowing his blood to be shed. They're not yet ready for what is taking place. So it's likely that this seemed like almost any other Passover meal. But this would be different. At this meal, several things would take place. First, we see that the betrayal of Christ is foretold, even identifying who the guilty party would be. This had to be difficult to grasp, not only for Jesus as the one who was already aware of all this, but for all the disciples, maybe even for the one who did it, who maybe he himself questioned whether what he was doing was right. Consider the fact that Jesus had chosen Judas from a life of, of obscurity and offered him a chance to be one of Jesus' disciples. What an incredible honor. Yet here he was betraying Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Another significant part of the meal would have been the moment that Jesus got up from the table, wrapped a towel around his waist, and he dropped to his knees. According to John 13, he then began to wash the feet of his disciples. This was such a powerful act for multiple reasons. First, if anyone deserved to have his feet washed at that table, it was Jesus. After all, he was the creator of heaven and earth and had demonstrated over and over again that he was the giver of all life. Surely he deserved to have his feet washed. Yet what makes this even more significant is that Luke 22, now this Last Supper story is recorded in all four Gospels, and each one records different aspects of the story. But in Luke chapter 22, it tells us that at this very same meal, a dispute broke out 
between his disciples regarding which of them was the greatest. Instead of rebuking them, Jesus simply demonstrates this incredible humility that apparently they were lacking at that moment in time. Can you imagine? You are sitting with the greatest man to have ever walked the earth. Never sinned, perfect in every way. He was there at the moment of creation. He'll be there at the end, at the resurrection of all of humanity. Perfect in every way. Yet you are debating which one of us is actually the greatest. Seriously? No matter what, you're only... Okay, you guys know I'm not a diehard Clemson fan, but it's like the rest of the ACC. You're only playing for second place. And for the disciples, they are in the presence of the one who gets first place every single time. Yet here they are debating about who gets second place. Seriously? But then we see one last thing that Jesus does at this meal. And it is this thing that becomes an integral part of the New Testament church. Remember that according to Acts 2.42, the verse that we've used throughout this entire series... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Listen to what he does in Matthew 26, verse 26 and 27. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, for this is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Surely this wasn't the first time he had broken bread with his disciples. In fact, it is likely that he had broken bread with them over and over again. In fact, breaking bread was described in the Passover instructions as well. So this meal, you knew that bread was a part of it. Uh, They used something that was called unleavened bread, which was basically, uh, it was about the way that it was made. It was without yeast. And basically this, it's almost more like a wafer, I guess, is probably a good way to look at it. I know that we read here in Exodus chapter 12 about what they ate. And most of what they ate talks about the lamb, but it also referenced the bread that they would eat. Bread and wine were normal commodities that were eaten at almost every meal in their culture. Apparently, the Atkins diet and the keto diet hadn't come around yet. But on this occasion, Jesus gives new meaning to the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. He says, this is my body broken for you. He then takes the wine and says, drink from it. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I wonder what he meant by this is my body. This is my blood. I mean, he's still sitting there in the flesh. So did this bread somehow become his physical body? Did this wine somehow become his physical blood? Certainly, he's not talking about the literal transformation. Otherwise, he would not physically be there at that moment. So let me illustrate it for you this way. Now, I'm going to concede. I'm going to tell you, first of all, this is a picture of 
my family. Now, some of y'all are looking at this and you're saying, no, it's not. It's just three of you. Well, that's because we're really good at taking pictures when you got your first kid. And then you get to that point where you no longer take pictures and this is my family. Besides, all my kids look alike anyways. So if you look close enough at the picture, you're going to think it's all three of them. You could argue for, for all three of them. I love all three of my kids equally. So anyways, this is my family. Well, not really. This is an image of my family. This is a picture of my family. So likewise, when Jesus says, this is my body, what he is saying is this is an image, this is a representation of my body. This is my blood. This is a representation of my blood. You see, the thing is, Jesus Christ was about to pay an incredible price for us. The blood of the Lamb was about to be shed for the forgiveness and the redemption of all humanity. He says, I want you to remember this. What does that mean for us? As with the Israelites, it means freedom. Not from an oppressing nation, but from bondage to sin. We no longer have to live as slaves. We no longer have to deal with the suffering associated with our bondage to sin. And it is the blood of Jesus that has truly set us free. We are no longer slaves, but we have become children of God. Boy, what a difference. When you are slaves, you do what you have to do, because if you don't, you're going to be punished for it. But when you become children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High God, you do it because you know it pleases the Father. There is a big difference between the two. You do it because you love one. You do it because you have to with the other. But it also means, the blood of Jesus being shed also means that we are each offered forgiveness. That passage from Matthew 26, I read it earlier, verse 27 declared that through the shedding of Christ's blood, all of humanity is offered forgiveness of sin. That means that when we stand before God, the sins of our past, they will never be held against us again. They've been cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness, never even to be brought up. This can be a difficult concept for us to grasp, especially as we often struggle with forgiving other people. How could God forgive us when we can't even forgive other people? A Gallup poll once found that 94% of Americans would like to be forgiving. But 85% felt that they could not be forgiving by themselves. In order to forgive, they would need help from God or something outside themselves. Why do most people find it so hard to forgive? Maybe it has something to do with pride if someone has hurt our feelings, it doesn't seem fair to forgive them quickly and easy, easily. Let them suffer guilt and shame. Let them grovel. Then maybe we will consider forgiving them. 
Aren't we glad that God doesn't treat us that way when we do something wrong? Aren't we glad that God doesn't sit there and think, I want you to be miserable for a while first, and then after you've suffered long enough, then I will grant you forgiveness. According to Psalm 103, he doesn't deal with us or punish us in the way our sins deserve. It says, his mercy is as high as the heavens. As soon as we ask for forgiveness from him, he graciously removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Aren't you grateful today for the forgiveness which the blood of Jesus Christ makes possible? The sacrifice of Jesus, his blood being shed, also sends a message that we are incredibly loved. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And he didn't even wait until we were able to prove ourselves worthy of such a sacrifice. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And his only reason was because he loved us more than we could ever imagine. As we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to challenge you to consider what this sacrifice means to you. Maybe it's one of the things that I've mentioned already. Maybe it's the forgiveness. Maybe it is the, the knowing of how much I am loved, whatever it might be. Maybe it's one of these things. Maybe it's something completely different. But I wonder how different your life is today simply because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. The truth is, every one of us, if we have received the grace of God, we should be different today than we were before. Remember last week's message, I talked about Acts 2, verse 37, where it talks about the fact that every one of us, in order to be saved, to be redeemed, to be forgiven, must repent and be baptized. Here's the thing, if you have truly been redeemed, you will have repented, which means your life should be different because you're not walking the same path you were before. How different is your life today because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Maybe God has spared you from something. I remember years ago, it was uh, Thanksgiving, we would always, Thanksgiving Day, the guys I grew up with, we would always go and play football on Thanksgiving morning, uh, usually at a local high school or uh, just anywhere where we get an open field, truthfully. So um, I had already given my heart to Christ and had begun to serve the Lord and was pursuing um, ministry. And I had come home for Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving morning, we went out and played our football game. And while we were out there, one of the guys had been drinking significantly the night before. And he's trying to run up and down the field. Well, that is not a good combination. At one point, the individual stops. He says, hold on. And he takes off running to the side, and he throws up everywhere. And the very first thought that went through my mind is, but for the grace of God, that would be me. You see, I can look and see that God took me out of things that could have been really ugly. And I wonder today if maybe some of us could do the same thing where we can look and see that God has redeemed us, he has set us free, and he has put us on a brand new path. 
I have one last thing to share with you before we participate in communion. Uh, Richard talked about it as he was uh, introducing the passage this morning. The beauty that we find in the communion, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, the beauty we find in there is not found in the death of Christ, but it is in the reality that this was not the end of the story. See, the truth is, Jesus Christ did die on the cross as a sacrifice for us, but that was not the end. Three days later, Jesus Christ would be resurrected from the dead, and he lives today whole, healthy, still reigning over all of his creation. Yes, the crucifixion is a horrible image because one paid the price for many others. But it is a beautiful image when you realize that through his death and then resurrection, he conquered not only sin, but he also conquered death. And today we all have the promise and the hope of life. And I mean true life because of what he's done for us. So I encourage you today as we participate in the elements of communion in just a moment to consider what this sacrifice means to you. I will tell you that we're just going to use bread and grape juice. You know, we read the passage this morning. They use bread and wine. It is somewhat irrelevant as to what those items really are. But what they represent is not irrelevant. The bread that we will use represents the body of Jesus Christ broken for you and for me. He said, every time you eat this, not just in a church service, not just when the pastor's standing there offering a prayer, every time you eat this, I want you to remember my body that is broken for you. Every time you drink this, whether it's grape juice or apple juice or whatever you want to add to it, every time you drink this, I want you to remember my blood that was shed for you. That means when you go home today and you're eating lunch with your family and you go to eat bread and drink Pepsi, it's an opportunity for you to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The salvation you have, the freedom you have, the forgiveness you have, it's all because of him. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me, some other individuals are going to come and they're going to help us serve this morning. Father, as we come before you today, we are grateful for the forgiveness of sins. We're grateful today for the sacrifice which we celebrate. We're grateful that you would allow your body to be broken and your blood to be shed for individuals who are imperfect, individuals who have failed in so many ways, individuals who have turned our backs even on you. Father, we know that your sacrifice was not just for those who had remained faithful, but for all those who would believe, all those who would trust, and all those who would receive. I pray today that each individual in this room will have placed their faith solely on you. And I pray that if there be one here today that does not know you, that they would find incredible grace and mercy right now. For you are gracious and you extend your offer of salvation to us even now. Not waiting for us to prove at the very moment we surrender ourselves to you, you offer us forgiveness. So right now we come before you and ask that you would 
Forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray that right now we would be made new in you. May this act of communion, the act of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, may it be more than a ritual, but an opportunity for us to remember how much you love us. Father, I pray today that each of us would be able to openly consider the impact of your sacrifice. Thank you for changing our lives. Thank you for giving us a hope. Thank you for giving us a future. Lord, as we partake of these ordinary elements, allow them to serve a much greater purpose. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I've asked the staff if they would come, and they're going to help us serve this morning. And as they do, we're going to ask if each individual, as you come forward and receive the elements, we ask you to take it back to your pews, and then after everyone has received the elements, we'll all partake of them together. We're going to have one uh, station over here, one here, and then one over on the side. So... We invite you to come at this time and to receive the elements of communion.
In the passage we read earlier today from John 13, from Luke 22, and from Matthew 26, we see the story of Jesus Christ with his disciples as they gathered around the table. And as they did, again, the disciples would not have been able to connect the idea of the Passover lamb. But we have the benefit of hindsight, and we know that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. As Jesus allowed his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, what he was doing was offering us freedom and forgiveness. That is what we celebrate today. He said, the bread, this bread represents my body that is broken for you. Every time you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. He then took the wine and he said, this represents my blood that is shed for you. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He said, every time you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Father, once again, we come before you, grateful for your body that was broken and your blood that was shed. We cannot say thank you enough for your grace and the mercy you extend to us. I pray that you would help us every day to live in such a way that we honor the sacrifice that's been given. May you be pleased as you look upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is a privilege to be able to celebrate communion with you today. If you get a chance, come back. We have one more sermon in this series as we talk about redefining the church and getting back to the way it was supposed to be. So thank you for being with us and go in peace. Thank <laughs> you.